Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. with me, so I apologize. Um, so as Rabbi Shmuley was saying, I primarily work on Christian poetry, which is a strange thing to do when you teach only in Jewish institutions, um, but I've actually found that it's very, very meaningful to students and to my colleagues and to others in the Jewish community to see how many of our ideas are reflected um, in and enhanced by, I think, our study of Christian poetry. Um, I can tell you a little bit later about how I came into this field, but I think we should actually jump right into the poems. Um, so I've given you some. I may have been overly ambitious saying we'd get through six poems tonight, but we'll see what we can do. It was hard for me to leave out any of them, so uh, I feel very attached. And I did include one Philip Larkin and one Thomas Hardy. Those are my two, um, two primary subjects. In, before we start on the first one, though, I want to say for each of these poems, I think there's something a little bit different that we have to learn. It's not one universal message that we get again and again. Each of them gives us something different. And one thing that I like to start with is to say that we have two opportunities for learning when we study the other. The first is just to understand the other. There's something very important about that. We don't live in a world where we can be alone. And so to understand the experience of the other, I think, can be very valuable. But as the teaching of Rav Cook suggests that, that Rav Shmuley was just talking about, to study the other holds up a mirror to the self. And so we have an opportunity not only to learn about someone who's different from us, but also to see something about ourselves. And I think about this in my teaching all the time as a high school teacher. I have parents who come to me and say, could you tell him to study a little harder because he listens to you, right? And I think that there's something really interesting about that. It's like hearing something from a parent is a kind of hearing it from the self. You need someone outside sometimes to give you a reflection of the thing that you really need to hear. And I think sometimes for me as an observant, as an Orthodox Jew, studying the work of these poets helps me to understand something more deeply about Judaism. And so I hope that that'll be the experience that we have together tonight. And since we're a pretty intimate crowd, um, I'm going to call on you occasionally. So if there's any moment where you want to add something, please do. Um, and if you feel like asking questions, do. And I might ask you some questions as we go, OK? We're going to start um, with a contemporary poet named Mark Jarman. Anyone know Mark Jarman? So, He's one of my favorites. I actually have an article that's, I think, about to be published about Mark Jarman. And he really grapples very deeply with um, all kinds of theological ideas, in particular trying to combine what it means to be a person of faith in a modern world. So that struggle that we all face on, on some level of modernity and tradition at the same time, Jarman is like, all in that all the time. And he plays around in this series that, um, that I brought in here with, do you know who John Donne is? He's pretty famous. Death Be Not Proud, For Whom the Bell Tolls, yeah. So he wrote this series called Holy Sonnets. 
And then Jarman wrote a series called Unholy Sonnets. So you think, hmm, okay. So if Dunn was really religious, then I guess what Jarman's doing is just completely upending that. And in fact, what I argue about his work is that he's not doing that at all. He's saying holy and unholy don't have to be pure opposites the way they sound. And he sort of plays around with what it means to be holy in a modern world in a way that maybe we feel unholy or that we're questioning our holiness. So I just want to share this one with you and we can talk about it a little and then and move on from there. Unholy sonnet number six. Look into the darkness and the darkness looks as if it masked before a telescope or turned because behind it heard your step. The darkness looks at you. The idea spooks some people and their reason self-destructs. Seized by a love of daylight, back they jump into the known, blazing like a headlamp, into the senses tuned like cars and trucks. And what about the counsel of my friend who says that when we look for God, remember God looks for us? If that's what starts the thing, then we must drive in circles till we find it's all one. To be looked for is to look for, and seeing is believing and being seen. Okay, that's a very complicated philosophical poem, and it seems a little bit like he's playing around with an idea from Nietzsche, who said, if you look into the abyss, the abyss looks back at you. Um, and, and so when he says, you look into the darkness and the darkness looks, and then keeps playing with this sort of circular idea, seeing is believing, which is a kind of cliche, but also being seen. And so the idea is that as people look for God, God is also searching for us. So, so he's talking about this idea of circularity in the relationship with God, that we shouldn't feel just that we're looking for God, but also that God's looking for us. And so as we search, we are being searched for. And one of the things that Jarman often plays around with is the idea of God feeling absent. He talks a lot about this perception of absence, that you say a prayer and you don't hear an answer. And what he often comes to in the poems, as he does in this one, is this idea that not hearing an answer doesn't mean there's an absence, right? Not hearing an answer just means you haven't heard an answer. And then that, he's actually using this tradition that Dunn uses as well called the via negativa, which is this idea that the absence is a kind of presence. Um, and that by addressing the absence, we make that presence known to ourselves. It's, it's relatively complicated, but I think there's something very beautiful about it. And so in that struggle for modernity, to find a way to combine modernity and faith, Jarman is actually doing something that I think any person of any faith in the contemporary world has to do, which is to say, what does it mean to hold on to my tradition and to try to live in the modern world at the same time? And so I see him doing that here. And here's one thing that he said that I thought was sort of interesting. He said he, he used to like to quote this John, John Logan is a poet. He used to like to quote this question all the time. When we speak of God, is it God we speak of? Okay? When we speak of God, is it God we speak of? Jarman's really interested, as Logan was, in the limitations of language. Right? How much can we actually um, say what we mean to say? And so he says, I used to say flippantly that the answer to that profound question was yes and no. I no longer think this answer is flippant. It is just as profound as the question. So he says that the answer to the question, when we speak of God, is it God we speak of, is yes and no. Um, and I think you can see in this poem that there's this kind of limitation in how capable we are of finding God, but that doesn't mean that God isn't present. 
And if we think about that in our own experience, I think there are lots of moments in Jewish text and in our own lives, probably, where we feel the same thing that he's describing here. Is that poem too hard? No, we're doing okay? Okay, because can, we can also take a step back. You know, one of the things that I do when I read the poems aloud, especially the first time, is read by the grammar, not by the line breaks. You guys know that trick, right? So if you stop at the end of every line, even where there's enjambment, that is where it's supposed to flow right through to the next line, then you start to lose the sense of the poem. You hear more the rhythm of it and the rhyme, but you lose the sense. So since we're talking about meanings today a lot, we're going to read right through the enjambment. So I'll read by the grammar. Okay, so that's Mark Jarman. Now let's look at this next poem, which is a little simpler, but I think asks a different kind of question. It's not this deep philosophical question of what it means to engage with an, with an apparently absent God who's actually present. It's something about God's intention. So let's look at this one. Do you guys know who County Cullen is? Okay, so I told you Jarman is a contemporary poet. I didn't mention, he teaches at Vanderbilt University. He still writes a lot now. Um, just a really interesting guy, totally worth reading. He, his Unholy Sonnets were first published in a book called Questions for Ecclesiastes, which I think is such a great title because Ecclesiastes is already such a questioning book to then say questions for Ecclesiastes right, is, is showing the kind of grappling that he's doing. County Cullen, though, now we're going back earlier in the century, he was a kind of quintessential Harlem Renaissance author. So African-American, he was raised by um, a minister who became his, adopted, became his adoptive family in the Harlem Renaissance, right in the heart of Harlem. Um, he ended up marrying Nina Du Bois, who was W.E.B. Du Bois' daughter. So they were like the sort of the first couple of the Harlem Renaissance. And although today we tend to know Langston Hughes better for various political reasons that I can explain, um, Cullen's actually a really important Harlem Renaissance poet, but was also very, very successful in the white schools that he went to at the time. And so he has this very elevated Western classical education and wrote in those traditions and argued, in fact, against Langston Hughes a little bit, who used more of the black vernacular of the time. And Cullen said, no, we have to elevate ourselves and speak in the language of the white school. And you can understand why that would have been a debate at the time and why there was some difficulty um, among the different poets of the Harlem Renaissance just over that argument. So this poem is called, Yet Do I Marvel. I doubt not God is good, well-meaning, kind, and did he stoop to quibble, could tell why the little buried mole continues blind, why flesh that mirrors him must someday die, make plain the reason tortured Tantalus is baited by the fickle fruit, declare if merely brute caprice dooms Sisyphus to struggle up a never-ending stair. Inscrutable his ways are, and immune to catechism by a mind too strewn with petty cares to slightly understand what awful brain compels his awful hand. Yet do I marvel at this curious thing, to make a poet black and bid him sing. So we can, let's, let's unpack that one a little bit and just pull it apart a little. It starts with, I doubt not, and then lists all kinds of confusing things that this speaker observes in the world. Like, I'm sure God has a good reason for all these things, but I don't know what they are, what the reason is, right? So why is the little mole blind? Why is flesh created in the image of God destined for mortality? Why does, was Tantalus tortured? Why is Sisyphus tortured? He says stare. We know, you know, usually the tradition is the mountain, but same idea. And, he, and then he goes on to say in the last six lines what we call the sestet of the poem. It's a sonnet. Um, inscrutable his ways are. That is, 
we as mere humans cannot comprehend why God is making these choices, why these things are the way they are. Um, and when he says, what awful brain compels his awful hand, I think we need to understand awful in its older meaning, which is filled with awe as opposed to just bad, right? We say awful today and usually just mean like terrible, but awful also has that root of like awesome, right? Filled with awe. So maybe he's hinting at the negativity here, but mostly he's saying we cannot understand what totally beyond us brain makes his hand work in the way that it does. But then that final couplet is the kicker, right? Yet, right, despite all of this, my willingness to say, I don't understand God's rationale, and I'm not even trying to, I'm fine to say I'm too limited to understand God, yet do I marvel at this curious thing to make a poet black and bid him sing. And this to me feels like such a contemporary question, maybe not this precise one, but a question that we ask all the time. If God has created a person this way, why are we asking the person to change? I think it's a question that comes up now when we're thinking about issues around, say, transgender um, or sexuality. But the same point is being raised here. Here's a believer, a person who says, I see that God is so great that I can't begin to comprehend the world that he has crafted. But really this, like really this question, why to make me black and then say I have to be a poet, right? And, and what's interesting too here is that he sees his blackness as a fact of his being, but similarly his poetness as a fact of his being, like he's called to be a poet. It doesn't feel in this poem like it's a choice at all. These are two equal facts in his life. And unfortunately, as we know in 1925, those two equal facts together weren't very easy to live, right? And so it's, it really raises this interesting question that I think we find ourselves asking all the time. What's God thinking? What's going on here? How can this be? And this one is in a very personal way, right? But I think it's a question that we all face in many ways. Now, the God that, that Cullen is addressing here is the Christian God. That's the faith tradition that he knows. But I think we see from a poem like this that doesn't invoke, aside from the word catechism, anything so particularly Christian, um, that we can ask very similar questions and that we probably do ask very similar questions. So, um, so I think here we're questioning the human limitations on understanding and God's omnipotence and God's thought process that although we're on one hand willing to say we can't possibly know, we still sort of say, but we'd really like to know. And I think that that's what we're working with here in a way that feels very true to at least my experience of Judaism. Um, I don't have this question about my personal identity, but I see it being asked all the time in ways that I think are really profound and meaningful and that don't have very helpful answers. One thing you also notice from this poem is in just what an, um, a Western style he writes, uses all of these classical references, writes in the very strict sonnet form, Right, as opposed to something like if you're familiar with Langston Hughes's poetry, it feels quite, quite different from that. So it's sort of interesting to see how he writes about his own blackness, but does it in a style that feels Shakespearean um, with, with references to Greek mythology, which is also an interesting choice to juxtapose with talking about belief in a Western god um, or in the monotheistic god. Um, any thoughts on that or questions about it? Yeah. It sounds a little, <coughs> it sounds a little like Heschel. 
sounds a little like Heschel. Very interesting. Yeah. Good, okay. The idea, the idea of stepping back, which is right. what I think he's saying here. Good. To step back and just feel a sense of awe. Right, so that you're saying that um, Heschel says that if mankind comes to an end, it won't be for lack of knowledge, it's for lack of awe, and that Cullen is pointing us towards more awe. Yes, I think he is, I would say, for 12 lines of the poem. And for the last two, he's going, but can't you just tell me this one thing? <laughs> right? And that feels like a very personal kind of address there. That last moment is, I get it. I'm too small. I can't understand this all. But I, I just don't understand this one thing. Um, and so there's a little bit of a stepping closer and stepping away, both. Maybe in a sort of Martin Buber sort of relationship with God. Yeah. Um, why don't we continue on? So again, this next poem, this is by Thomas Hardy. It's so hard to choose a single Thomas Hardy poem because he writes so, so much about God. And he was raised in a Christian tradition as well. Um, but I don't know that people would consider him a very religious poet because he's so doubting in his work. But I think that the fact that he's constantly grappling with his sense of God, to me, is a kind of religious sensibility. I, that's how I read religious. right? For me, religious means fighting with it as opposed to ignoring it altogether. So the fact that he struggles with God's role in the world doesn't seem to me an anti-religious tendency. It seems to me that it's a religious tendency. Because if he didn't care, then that's not religious, right? But to say, I want to find God, I'm just having trouble doing it, that to me feels like a very pious kind of endeavor. I'd be happy to hear otherwise from you. I know that that's a slightly um, controversial argument about what it means to be a pious person. Um, but, but certainly his faith is troubled at times. So this poem that I chose is called Channel Firing. He wrote it in 1914, and it is indeed a war poem. But what's interesting about it is that he wrote it before World War I started. So it's 1914, but we know that World War I began um, the first shots on July 28th of that year. This poem was published on May 1st. So um, he was actually probably thinking about the Boer War. Uh, which was 1899 to 1902. So um, he wrote a lot of poetry about the Boer War. Then, as World War I commenced, he continued to write about World War I, but he was not a soldier in either of those wars. He was just thinking about war, especially about what it meant for human beings to fight against one another um, under the sort of the view of God what it meant to do that while God was overseeing them. And you'll see that there are some things in this poem that are a little bit discomforting in the way that he presents God and has us think about God. But I think that that discomfort can be useful as well. So let's look at this one. Channel firing. That night your great guns, unawares, shook all our coffins as we lay and broke the chancel window squares. We thought it was the judgment day and sat upright. While drearysome arose the howl of wakened hounds, the mouse let fall the altar crumb, the worms drew back into the mounds, the glebe cow drooled, till God called, no, it's gunnery practice out at sea, just as before you went below. The world is as it used to be, all nations striving strong to make red war yet redder. Mad as hatters, they do no more for Christ's sake than you who are helpless in such matters." that this is not the judgment hour for some of them's a blessed thing. For if it were, they'd have to scour hell's floor for so much threatening. 
Ha ha, it will be warmer when I blow the trumpet, if indeed I ever do, for you are men and rest eternal sorely need. So down we lay again. I wonder, will the world ever saner be, said one, than when he sent us under in our indifferent century? And many a skeleton shook his head. Instead of preaching 40 year, my neighbor Parson thirdly said, I wish I had stuck to pipes and beer. Again, the guns disturbed the hour, roaring their readiness to avenge as far inland as Stourton Tower and Camelot and Starlit Stonehenge. Um, so let's talk through this one a little bit because it's difficult. Who are the narrators here? The dead, that's right. The dead are narrating the poem. So they're saying, we were lying peacefully, probably in the churchyard, right? Because this is where dead were buried. And then there's this sense like the chancel windows. It was like it was near the church, either under the floor of the church um, in, in some kind of crypt or in the churchyard. And we heard this loud noise, the gunfighting, and we sat up in our coffins and we thought, this is the judgment day, okay? And then we hear through those middle stanzas, God's voice. God says, no, it's gunnery practice out at sea. The world is as it used to be, okay? So the idea is that there's some human responsibility here. God's almost an observer in this situation as much as these people are. God says, I haven't called Judgment Day yet. Um, and it's I, the big question for me is how we read the tone of that ha-ha. So I chose one way when I was reading it. Is it sort of like a, a rueful or is it like cynical? Ha-ha. Um, right, well, like that changes how we see God in this poem. Is he really being that mean-spirited and saying like, "Ha ha, it's going to be a lot warmer when I when I call for Judgment Day because you guys are really terrible." <laughs> right? That's what he's saying, um, and he's and he even says, "Maybe I won't ever do it because you are men and rest eternal sorely need." So this is the voice of God. It's so um, sort of antithetical to what we'd like to think the voice of God is. It feels like sort of a mocking person, right? Person with power, but saying, you know, the world is as bad as it ever was. You think it's judgment day, but that's not what's going on at all. It's just you people continuing to kill each other or to practice for killing each other. And then God leaves the scene there. And with the last three stanzas, these corpses or the, the souls lie down. They lie down again and say, I wonder, will the world ever saner be than when he sent us under in our indifferent century? So this question of Will things ever get better? Or is this how we're always going to be? And we see that, that um, statement from God as well in this poem when he says, all nations striving strong to make red war yet redder. Everyone's fighting to make it as bloody as possible. And to imagine Hardy writing this just before World War I's unbelievably bloody war, right? And he's thinking about it in terms of the Boer War, which as wars go, I mean, it's before we knew that there was going to be a great war. But, but the idea that he saw people striving to make red war yet redder. And so here, the voice of God is something that we can ask ourselves about. Why is God being presented in this way? But also, the terrible flaws of humanity and the way that people, even people who are hearing the voice of God, would still sort of have this reaction. Um, yeah, we all kill each other and we continue to do so. And you see that Hardy reinforces that point as the poem goes on because he says, um, when one of them says, will the world ever saner be, many a skeleton shook his head. So they said, no, mm -mm, it's not going to be. And look what the parson says. Now, it's chosen as a parson intentionally because what's a parson? 
A preacher, a religious figure, exactly. The parson says, instead of preaching 40 year, which I don't think is an accidental choice of number, right? What's 40 years? There are lots of 40 years that we have in our tradition. Right, of course, the walking in the desert. So if we think about um, any kind of religious leader, 40 years, he's sort of like a Moshe figure, right? Instead of doing that, I wish I had stuck to pipes and beer. What's that? Pipes and beer. Exactly, hedonism. I shouldn't have spent all my time preaching, speaking God's word. I should have just enjoyed myself, just, you know, pleasures of the body. Um, and so that's the last word that we hear from the human, or I guess deceased characters here. And then we have this final statement that I think is it's beautifully written and very hopeless. Again, the guns disturbed the hour, roaring their readiness to avenge. Okay, and then we have these three sort of what feel like random places listed. As far inland, we could hear this noise, this readiness to avenge, as far inland as Stourton Tower and Camelot and Stonehenge. Now, each of those three, I think, is significant in terms of thinking about history because, does anyone know Stourton Tower? That's a hard one. Stonehenge and Camelot, you've heard of. Stourton Tower was where the Viking invaders were defeated um, in like around 79. Okay, and then, I'm sorry, sorry, later, um, like 8, 879. Um, and then we go to Camelot, which is usually thought of as being around the year 400, and then Stonehenge, which is like 1000 BCE, right? Or, or maybe even more, we're not really sure on the dating of Stonehenge. So each of those, we're going as far inland as, they move farther inland, but also farther back in time, basically back to the earliest thing he can think of in England. This pattern of human behavior is so long-standing that in fact I think the argument in this poem is that God has very good reason to doubt humans' ability to move past this behavior because we see it so far back. Um, and so I think that that's a really interesting and very bleak thing. It's one of the reasons that people always say Thomas Hardy was depressed. Um, I question that. I don't think he was really depressed. But he was a realist in many ways, and he was not afraid to face the ugly truths of the world. Um, you know, most of us don't want to walk around all the time thinking about our mortality, even though it's true. Hardy happened to want to think about it all the time. Um, but... You know, so people saw him as a pessimist, but he saw himself as a realist, and anyone who wasn't thinking about their own mortality all the time as sort of delusional. Um, but here, what we see is this pattern of human behavior that he feels that he can identify very clearly. And I think it's really prescient because World War I started three months later. Uh, so, so he saw, you know, we're just our readiness to avenge. And it raises this question about God's presence, but I think what it does is turn that question back to humans. Right? And say, okay, here's God's voice. Maybe you don't like what he's saying, but what are you doing about it? What's your responsibility in this? Which, of course, is a Jewish question in so many ways. We ask ourselves this all the time. Um, right? It's not enough to sit back and say, God, save us from this. Right? What are we doing? And I think that that's sort of the question that Hardy's asking here, even if there's a sense of irreverence about it because of the way that he presents God, God's voice. So when I read a poem like this, I say... This is spurring us to action. Maybe it's on some level saying we can't make the world better, but I think on some level it's saying we should try. Okay, ready to keep going? Okay, the next one is a Philip Larkin poem. And it's a little bit longer, so I think the way we should read this one 
is um, to go stanza by stanza and just make sure we understand what's going on in each stanza, okay? So um, there's one that's gonna be a hard one to stop in between, but otherwise we'll just make sure. So Larkin was a great follower of Hardy. It's one of the reasons I work on both of them. Anyone, have you heard of Philip Larkin? If you know poetry. So he, you know how everybody here knows who Robert Frost is? Like everybody in America has pretty much heard of Robert Frost. That's how Larkin is in England. Like everyone in England studies Larkin as a kid, like sort of knows who he is. In America, less so, uh, but he's so worth reading. He doesn't have a huge body of work from his lifetime, but every one of them is worth reading. Um, I think he's amazing. But he also talks about Hardy as like his primary influence. There are reasons to question that, but, but I think you can see the connection. Um, and a lot of people read this poem called Church Going as very irreverent. Um, and you can, you'll be able to see why when we start. But I want to argue, actually, that I think that it's actually a really pious poem and that it has a lot um, for us to think about in terms of our relationship to religion, um, especially maybe as we think about assimilation in the Jewish community or about trying to fit in with those around us or about the kind of cynicism that we see about around faith um, and issues of faith in, in the world. So um, there's nothing here that suggests that the eye of the poem is Larkin himself, but people usually read it that way. People tend to read poetry as being, like if there's an eye, it's probably the poet. I don't, I don't go in for that. I think that there's no reason a poet can't be creating a character just like a novelist does. So when you open a novel and it says I, you don't assume that the I is the author. But for some reason with poetry, people often do. So I'm going to say the speaker here and not assume that this is Larkin. Um, but some people think that it is. Church going. Once I am sure there's nothing going on, I step inside, letting the door thud shut. Another church, matting, seats, and stone, and little books, sprawlings of flowers cut for Sunday, brownish now, some brass and stuff up at the holy end, the small, neat organ, and a tense, musty, unignorable silence, brewed God knows how long. Hatless, I take off my cycle clips in awkward reverence. So what kind of character have we got so far here? He's setting us up for who this speaker is. What's the situation? He's not going to services, fair enough, but he's in a church, right? So when, when is he in the church? He's searching for something. Yeah. Nothing else is going on there, exactly, right? It's an empty church. We know that it's still in use because there are cut flowers, but they're brownish now. So it's not a church that hasn't been used in years and years. It was probably used last Sunday or a couple Sundays ago, exactly. But it's probably like the middle of the week or towards the end of the week now. And there's nothing going on, okay? And the door thuds shut, and he says another church. So we have to think about that. Here's a person going into another church. Why is he going into empty churches as a regular thing? Yeah, Hathan? He's a tourist. He's a tourist. He's a tourist. It does seem like that. It's, it seems like a, a tourist interested in churches, and yet there are things about what he says that make it feel like he's not interested in churches. And so that's confusing. Someone who's interested in churches probably wouldn't say some brass and stuff up at the holy end, which doesn't feel like a very reverent way to speak about a holy building, right? I mean, he calls it up at the holy end, but even saying up at the holy end feels not so thoughtful about the, the structure of a church. And brass and stuff similarly feels like a little bit of a throwaway. And I think that's really intentional on his part. But certainly he does feel like a tourist who's stopping into another church. Well, he didn't have a hat. So what did he take off out of reverence? He's already hatless, so he can't take off his hat. 
So what does he take off instead? Cycle. His cycle clips. Do you guys all know what cycle clips are? Yeah, you do. Um, so I don't think so many people wear cycle clips anymore, but it was like to prevent your trousers from getting caught in the gears. Right. It's a funny thing to take off in a church. But he said he didn't have a hat and he had to do something. So even there, it's reverence, but it's awkward reverence. Right? It's not the traditional sense of reverence. It's something else. Um, I also love, I'll just point out the little pun, right? The unignorable silence brewed God knows how long. Because, of course, in this case, we use that phrase as a throwaway, God knows how long. But actually here, I think he means it literally. Like, God actually knows how long it's been silent in the church. That's just a little cute one. Okay. So this is our sense of this guy, right? We don't exactly know why he's there. There's an awkward reverence about his visit to the church, and it's not something he's doing for the first time. But we don't quite see what the point is, and it doesn't. And it's clear that he's not there for a service or for some official sort of prayer. Move forward, run my hand around the font. From where I stand, the roof looks almost new, cleaned or restored. Someone would know, I don't. Mounting the lectern, I peruse a few hectoring large-scale verses and pronounce, here endeth, much more loudly than I'd meant. The echoes snigger briefly. Back at the door, I sign the book, donate an Irish sixpence, reflect the place was not worth stopping for. Okay, an Irish sixpence is basically worth nothing. <laughs> so it's like, it's like an out-of-use coin. <laughs> okay, so there's that. Um, says, here endeth. Right, so even to step up to the lectern and sort of peruse the verses, the biblical verses, something about that that feels like he's not giving maybe the, um, the space that the place deserves for being a church. Does this stanza feel a little less reverent to you than the first one? Yeah, that he's speaking from the place where the, where the community's leader would speak, um, sort of questioning whether how new the roof is, these kinds of things. It, it still has that touristy feel, but it's not clear why he's there. And at the end of that stanza, he reflects that the place wasn't worth stopping for. Yet stop I did. In fact, I often do. And always end much at a loss like this, wondering what to look for. Wondering, too, when churches will fall completely out of use, what we shall turn them into. If we shall keep a few cathedrals chronically on show, their parchment, plate, and picks in locked cases, and let the rest rent free to rain and sheep. Shall we avoid them as unlucky places? So what we notice here now is he starts to reflect on this. Why do I always do this? You know, I keep doing it. And then he wonders what churches will fall, oh, what churches will turn into when they fall completely out of use. And notice that he says when, not if. When they fall completely out of use, it's a plan. Right? Definitely people will not need churches in the future. And what will they be then? Will we let them out rent-free to rain and sheep? Can you picture the church just falling into ruin where the rain's actually coming through it? That's what he's envisioning, that the church is just going to sort of dissolve. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. On the other hand, you notice that at the beginning when he said some brass and stuff up at the holy end, now we've got parchment, plate, and picks. Picks, you know, that's pretty specific. That's the little, um, 
the little container that's used after the communion to carry away any of the communion wafer that's left so that it doesn't accidentally fall. You have to know something about a church to know that. Right? So it's sort of interesting that he's got a little bit more vocabulary here than he seemed to before, but also is picturing the church falling completely out of use. So he's got a couple choices so far. Um, we'll keep them chronically on show, that is make them into museum pieces. We'll have some that just sort of fall away and become taken over by nature, right? plant and animal alike. Um, we may avoid them as unlucky places. And then he continues with that line of thought in the fourth stanza. Or after dark, will dubious women come to make their children touch a particular stone, pick simples for a cancer, or on some advised night, see walking a dead one. Power of some sort will go on in games, in riddles, seemingly at random. But superstition, like belief, must die. And what remains when disbelief has gone? So we'll stop there, because the next line has an enjambment in it. These are very deep questions that he's, that he's asking. And these questions get to the heart of what the church is there for in the first place. Why do we have holy places? What do those buildings serve us for? Is it just superstition? That idea that women will come and make their children touch a particular stone feels, you know, like this, like sort of like a Blarney stone kind of legend. Pick simples for a cancer. Do you know what that is? Mm -hmm. um, simples would be like herbal remedies. So like someone has an illness and they would come there to pick herbal remedies because they heard that the herbs there were sort of better somehow. Or for ghosts, right? Because there's a cemetery there because the church is the burial place. And then he says power of some sort will go on. Right? So there's something, it's a little grasping for something, but superstition, like belief, must die. And then he says, once belief dies, we have disbelief, and what remains when disbelief has gone? So he's sort of pushing this to its logical end. Right? We're not going to have, like maybe superstition will go away, and then belief will go away, and then disbelief will go away, and what's left then? Grass, weedy pavement, brambles, buttress, sky, a shape less recognizable each week, a purpose more obscure. I wonder who will be the last, the very last, to seek this place for what it once was. One of the crew that tap and jot and know what rudeboths were? Who are those people? Like church history people. They're taking notes and that kind of thing. Um, and also, he knows what rudeboths are, or he wouldn't be able to say it. Yeah, it's just it's, it's a part of the architecture, but you notice this person is relatively knowledgeable. You can't throw these terms around if you don't know them. Or will it be some ruin bibber, randy for antique, or Christmas addict counting on a whiff of gown and bands and organ pipes and myrrh? So those are all choices of who's going to be the very last person to come. Right? Someone looking for antiques, someone who actually cares about the history of churches and is taking notes on it, Someone who just likes Christmas and wants to come and smell Christmas one last time? Or will he be my representative, bored, uninformed, knowing the ghostly silt dispersed, yet tending to this cross of ground through suburb scrub because it held unspilt so long and equably what since is found only in separation, marriage and birth and death and thoughts of these, for which was built this special shell. For though I've no idea what this accoutred frousty barn is worth, it pleases me to stand in silence here.
A serious house on serious earth it is, in whose blent air all our compulsions meet, are recognized and robed as destinies. And that much never can be obsolete, since someone will forever be surprising a hunger in himself to be more serious and gravitating with it to this ground, which, he once heard, was proper to grow wise in, if only that so many dead lie round. That's pretty spectacular, right? Oh, you don't look like it's spectacular. It is, it's so beautiful. Um, okay, so, so what we get in those last two stanzas is he starts by saying, my representative, so that is someone like me, will be bored and uninformed, and then goes on to be completely other than bored and uninformed, right? A serious house on serious earth it is, right? This sense that even when the church is gone, there's something really special about sacred spaces. There's a place that matters. We are drawn to certain places. And I think that we can have that sensibility also about Jewish history, right? There are things we're drawn to. We may not have even a sense anymore of, of why they're exactly important. And I think we see that there are Jews among us who don't have observance anymore or don't have any of that kind of connection that might draw them to a place, and yet they still go. They would still go to, a, to see an old synagogue or to a Jewish museum to see artifacts. That's what he's talking about. He's not there because he has a, a sense that he wants to pray exactly, but he still feels that there's something special and holy and important about this place. And I think we see this tendency in ourselves all the time. Um, and also that he doesn't quite want to admit to himself who he is. Right? He doesn't want to say, I actually feel something really special here. So that there's this constant tension in this poem of like, I reflect that the place wasn't worth it. I say, here endeth. And I hear the, the echoes sniggering at me. I toss an Irish sixpence in. I say that I'm bored and uninformed. I say brass and stuff up at the holy end. And then there are all these moments of this immense power of the place, the beauty of it, how special and important it is. So he's doing all of that at the same time. And I think that tension also is a really real tension. We don't, I don't want to say we, but there are people who don't want to say, I recognize some power in this. It's easier to say, that all feels like superstition. And so he's saying that on some level, and then saying, but I can't completely buy that argument either. There's something there. Something important is there. This is a place that's proper to grow wise in. Um, and he's not even sure why, so he doesn't end on that either. He ends, if only that so many dead lie around. And he talks about separation too, right? Why are these places important? Birth and marriage and death and thoughts of these, right? Because the questions that we ask that bring us to religion are those big questions about life, about connection, about birth and death. And so continuing to come to a place where those questions attempt to be answered feels meaningful to this character, even though on another level he wants to be like too cool for church, right? But, but that coolness, like it keeps breaking down in the poem. Um, this one I find, I just find it very beautiful and I find it very significant to sort of the modern experience again of, of connecting and also wanting sort of to push away, to not connect. Yes? He is not Irish. He was born in England. Um, he lived most of his life in Hull in northern England, but he did, did live in Ireland for a brief period. Because there are so many towns that have just decayed. And in the, with that town, the church has decayed. 
That's true. There are a lot of decayed churches, but not only in Ireland, in England as well, especially in the countryside, right? Less, like if you go to England and you go to, the, to these areas with the big cathedrals, you know, to Canterbury, to Salisbury, then you're going to see all of these things that are really well-maintained. But the small country churches, many of them are falling into ruin. So he's speaking to a real experience. I think you can see them in Ireland as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's an, um, an English experience also. Although he did live in Ireland as well, so maybe he's thinking about something that he saw there. It's possible. Yes? When? He lived right through the middle part of the 20th century. He died in 1985 um, and was born in tw either 25 or 24. Oh, sorry, 22. 22 to 85. Um, so he only overlapped with Thomas Hardy. Like, Thomas Hardy passed away when he was six. But, um, but he, he saw the way that Hardy thought about the world and thought about faith and thought about what controlled the world. He said that that was really influential to him. Um, but he lived right through the middle of the 20th century. And actually, he was a full-time librarian. So poetry was a sideline. He was the librarian for the University of Hull, um, the head librarian for many, many years. Um, I, I really recommend that you look at some of his other poems. They're well worth it. If you look him up, the one that you're going to see first is called This Be the Verse. Skip that one. <laughs> it's, it's the one that he's most famous for because it has a curse word in the first line, but it's a terrible reason for a poem to be famous. Um, and it's like, it, I don't know, it's one of these th things that like kids find funny, and he was always very annoyed that people knew that as his poem, but the other ones are great. He has one called The Old Fools um, that... It's just devastating. And his last published poem is called Abad, A-U-B-A-D-E. It means a morning poem, um, as in waking up in the morning. And it's about waking up very early in the morning while it's still dark out and starting to fear death. And it's just, uh, it's amazing. Um, and that's one where he's also very critical of religion. He talks about, about all the ways to think about death and to fear death in that poem and says at one point, um, that, um, that people try to make you not fear death. And he says, religion, that vast, moth-eaten, musical brocade created to pretend we never die. <laughs> Just a pretty harsh line about, about religion. Um, but it, it, I, I just think he's so thoughtful about it. And this is one of the things that I like. You know, I think when we're studying, like I teach in a Jewish school, we're studying how deep and complex so many Jewish thinkers are. And we have a a very superficial sense of the complexity of Christian thinkers. And I think what we can see when we read these poems is just how much they're thinking about the exact same questions we're thinking about. Um, and maybe they're answering them in different ways, but the questions that lead us to faith are very, very similar. Those human motivations that, that sort of prompt that kind of questioning, I think, are really related. And, um, and it's nice when you have the poems and you can get a little bit deeper into seeing how people outside the Jewish tradition are asking the same kinds of questions that we are. Okay, I have two more short poems to go over, and then we're going to have time for questions, okay? Um, the last one we don't need to talk about at all. I just want to read it to you. Okay, so this is very different from anything we've seen so far. You can see that I lean a little bit towards skepticism, like religious skepticism. I just find that very meaningful. Um, I find like that kind of engagement very meaningful. But Richard Wilbur, whom we're going to read next, um, he wrote this, it, this was, he's still living, but he published this in one of his, I think maybe his first volume, 1947. Um, he was born in 1921, and he's written a lot of poetry. And he sees himself as a very optimistic person, one who doesn't particularly question, who is 
just very deeply faithful and sees the world as being a very beautiful place. We don't have so many poets who do that. They tend to be a little more troubled. You've seen some of that from what I've shown you so far. Um, but Wilbur said, uh, I feel that the universe is full of glorious energy and that the ultimate character of things is comely and good. I'm perfectly aware that I say this in the teeth of all sorts of contrary evidence, and I must be uh, basing it partly on temperament and partly on faith, but that's my attitude. And I think we see it in this poem that I wanted to share with you. It's very dense, so we'll have to pull it apart a little bit, but it's called Praise in Summer, and I think it's absolutely spectacular. And again, it deals with the question I was saying our first poet, Mark Jarman, deals with, which is the limitations of human language. How well can we actually understand um, God if our language is so limited? But it does it in a, in a sort of different way that ends up having a more positive twist than the poems that we've seen so far. So I wanted to make sure to share you know, something that was just faithful. <laughs> it didn't feel so questioning. It's questioning something else, but we'll see. Um, so you might not understand it the first time through because it's so dense, and then we'll go through and talk through the sentences. Praise in summer. Obscurely, yet most surely called to praise, as sometimes summer calls us all, I said the hills are heavens full of branching ways where star-nosed moles fly overhead the dead. I said the trees are mines in air. I said, see how the sparrow burrows in the sky. And then I wondered why this mad instead perverts our praise to uncreation. Why such savors in this wrenching things awry? Does sense so stale that it must needs derange the world to know it? To a praiseful eye, should it not be enough of fresh and strange that trees grow green and moles can course in clay and sparrows sweep the ceiling of our day? So he starts by saying that in this obscure way, he feels called to praise. He wants to praise the world. And this is a very Christian way of talking about things, right? To be called to something, to have a calling. But he says he's called to praise. As sometimes summer calls us all. We all have these moments where we just say, wow, it's so awesome. And he's having one of those moments. And so what does he say? He says, the hills are heavens full of branching ways um, where star-nosed moles fly overhead the dead. So probably what he's saying is that the moles are above the dead, right? They're buried below. But he uses the word fly because he's a poet and he's sort of playing around with language. So he says they're coursing through the hills, but they're flying above the dead. So it's this very poetic way of talking about the moles, right? And then this very poetic way of talking about trees. They're mines in air. And this very poetic way about talking about sparrows, they burrow in the sky, right? Almost burying themselves in the sky. And then he stops and he says, why do I have to say it that way? Why this mad instead perverts our praise to uncreation? Which, which I'm going to just sort of translate for you. He's, he's saying, I'm messing around with the language so much, it's like uncreating these things these beautiful things that I'm trying to praise. It's, it's a perversion of the praise to play around with language in this way. Why is there such savor? Why is there such a joy for me in wrenching things awry, in using this kind of metaphorical language to talk about these things? That's really what it is. If you're saying sparrows are burrowing in the sky, it's metaphorical language. You wouldn't call it personification exactly, because it's not making the sparrows like a person, but it's just 
playing around with the verb choice in a way that doesn't feel natural to what they're actually doing. And he said that was his first impulse. And then he pauses midway through the sonnet and says, why am I doing that? Why am I perverting these things? Does sense so stale, right? Do our senses get so tired that it must needs derange the world to know it? It's a great question. Does sense so stale that it must needs derange the world to know it? The only way we can know the world is to mess it up with our own language? To a praiseful eye, and then he goes back to his three images. Should it not be enough of fresh and strange that trees grow green and moles can course in clay and sparrows sweep the ceiling of our day? So he, he pauses in his own sort of poetic manipulation of description and says, it's enough the way it really is. That's miraculous enough. Right. Um, it should be enough of fresh and strange, which are two great words there. right? It, we forget that it's fresh and strange. And so I think in particular, he's criticizing poets here. And so poets feel that they need to mess with everything to make it fresh and strange. But the world has that already. Now, the one slight way that we might say t that he's undermining his own argument is sparrows sweep the ceiling of our day, which is still <laughs> awfully poetic, right? <laughs> and sweep still isn't exactly the word that you would probably use if you were being your most literal. But I think the point here is to pause himself in saying, I have to somehow manipulate the world to make it seem fantastic. And I should stop and look around and say, it's fantastic just the way it is, right? The poem's spectacular, but it's very hard to get to because there's just so much language in there. He does some pretty, pretty amazing things with words. Um, but you see now that we've pulled it apart a little bit what it's actually saying. And it really is just a praise. And I think for myself also, whenever I read this one, it's a little bit of a reminder. You don't have to work so hard. Just see what's actually there. Um, and I think that that's a... Um, it's a temptation that all of us have to say, like, let's try to remind ourselves in some complex way that God is present. And he's saying, simplify. God is present just in the, in the beautiful things that you see. You don't have to make them more complicated. And although he's a very religious Christian, a Catholic, um, I don't think that that sentiment is restricted to Catholicism or to Christianity at all. I think that that speaks to all of us to say, just look and simplify. You don't have to make it so complicated. OK. Here's the last one. Oh, did you have any questions or thoughts about that one? OK, OK. Um, so this is from a collection that's, that hasn't even come out yet. It's about to come out this year. Um, that's called The Still Pilgrim. And the whole collection is sonnets. And each of them starts with the words, the still pilgrim, and then describes something that this still pilgrim is doing. So already we have a little bit of an oxymoron, because a pilgrim is someone who travels in search of some religious truth, and the still pilgrim is still, I guess, not traveling. Um, so we can think about why the still pilgrim is doing these things, but this is the still pilgrim considers a hard teaching. And Angela O'Donnell, also a Catholic poet, um, she's a professor at Fordham University. She's published a lot on Catholicism. She's actually organizing um, in a couple months a conference on, um, on Catholic literature. And this poem in particular is in response to a quotation by Flannery O'Connor. Do you know her, the short story writer? Um, so O'Connor said this, if you believe in the divinity of Christ, you have to cherish the world at the same time that you struggle to endure it. So 
the Christ part obviously isn't going to speak to us, but I think just if you believe in God or if you if you are a believer, the, the part that she works with in the poem is you have to cherish the world at the same time that you struggle to endure it. So that's another tension that we all face, to love the world and also to struggle with it, to struggle through it, to put up with it. Okay? And so this is what she does in response to that. And you have to think about those words because she talks about cherish and talking about the world and talking about struggle. Not just love, but cherish it, this world. From the Latin carus to the French share, meaning dear, meaning costly, beloved, meaning hold to your heart, handle with care. This world, from Old English, world, meaning human race, meaning age of man. This world, meaning our earth and her heirs, meaning all of us here, now, if you can. The suicide bomber, the killer cop, the war-worn refugee at the door, the racist, the rapist, the shooter and shot, the filthy rich and the dirty poor. This world, ever ancient and ever new, not just love it, but act like you do. I love that poem. I think, um, I think that that's really, that's a lesson for all of us, right? That idea that you have to, if, if you're going to be a believer, you can't just say that you love the world. There's a kind of action that she sort of sticks in there at the end, right? It goes through all of this. What does it mean to cherish the world? And it gets harder as the poem goes on because you can say cherish the world, but when she starts listing all of those people that you're meant to cherish, it's not so easy. And then not just cherish them, that is not just hold space for them in your heart, but act like you do, right? That's the challenge. And so again, it's taking that idea of faith and turning it into action, a feeling that leads to an action, right? And that's a, a Christian sentiment that's, that's being expressed here by a Catholic poet, but one that speaks to me so much as a Jew, um, something that we can learn from each other, and also helps me always to remember, um, so that's the sort of reflecting on me part, right? But then the looking back, I have to remember that when I, in my own mind, accidentally oversimplify others or start to feel really great about Jewish thought and all those other people who you know, aren't as complex and thoughtful as we are, right? I see these poems and I say, these are the same kinds of questions that we're asking all the time. These are the same kinds of issues that we're grappling with all the time, right? People who are people of faith share so much in their worldview. And that's not to say there aren't differences. And it's not to say that we shouldn't acknowledge those differences. But I think we spend a lot of our time acknowledging the differences and not acknowledging the similarities so much. Or if we do, it's in a very, very general way, right? We're all human beings sort of thing. But when we look at these questions, what we can say is there are theological roots that feel like they're shared. And I don't necessarily mean in terms of text, although of course there are shared texts, but the questions that prompt us to faith, the questions that prompt us to think about God. Those things are really shared, and we can see that we're asking very similar questions in ways that I think can be really meaningful as we move forward. So thank you very much, and I'd be happy to talk to you more or answer questions. Thanks. I'm just going to repeat your questions because um, the, they want that in the mic. So yes? Okay. I have two things. Sure. And I hesitate a little bit to bring this up because I can't remember attribution. Okay. But I was reading recently, and this is in regards to the Philip Larkin poem. Mm -hmm. it, the, the quote is something like, 
And this is from a Jew, 20th century, I believe, Jewish scholar. Okay. Our rituals and our ritual objects are the detritus of our encounter with God. Hmm, okay. I don't know who said that. Does anyone know? Can you repeat the question? Yeah, I'm going, I said I'm going to, yeah. Okay, so our rituals and our ritual objects are the detritus of our encounter with God. Okay. And the reason that yeah. I bring that up is yeah. because of the, in the Philip Larkin, mm -hmm. he, he has a sense of awe that's right. Even as he regards the brass and stuff. That's right. He has that sense of awe when he's looking at all of those things. And it's something about the earth on which the building is built, the building itself, and the objects contained within the building. All of those feel like some connection to holiness for him. Although it's hard for his speaker to articulate exactly what that connection to holiness is. And so, yeah, if that's, that's a Jewish speaker, I'll have to look up who said that. But a Jewish speaker who's saying our Jewish ritual objects have that too. Um, I think it works better for sort of high church, like Anglican, which is probably what he's dealing with, because they have so many more ritual objects than, say, like the Baptist church, which just happens to have fewer. But even there, you see that connection of finding something special or holy in what's left over. But I really, I like that quote, so thank you. And what's your second thing? What caused you to not be teaching at the college level okay. and not be teaching at the high school? Okay, so why did I switch from teaching college to teaching high school? Um, I was at Yeshiva University for 15 years. Um, it was my first job out of graduate school when I finished my doctorate, and I did earn tenure there in 2011. Um, being a tenured professor is basically like winning the lottery. <laughs> so it's um, it's it was, my forever job, I guess. That's that's what that means when you get tenure. You're gonna you're never gonna leave because I mean who gets lifetime job security? There's a New Yorker cartoon about that, two Supreme Court justices walking down the hall and saying, tenured professor, now there's a good gig. So <laughs> um, so I definitely did not plan on leaving. Um, and um, the university is having financial troubles and I was the head of the writing program. Writing programs are very often the first programs to be cut at institutions because they're, um, they're cheap and they don't have majors. Generally, it, it's something that serves all of the incoming students. And my program was staffed all by full-time non-tenure-track faculty, which meant that they had full annual salaries and benefits and office space among the other professors, but they did not have job security. And that meant that it was very easy to cut them. It's very hard to cut tenured professors. They basically have to have broken the law or done something really horrible. And so my program looked like a big, wide open space to cut. And um, the provost requested that I fire all of those faculty members and replace them with adjunct faculty members who earn $3,600 per course with no benefits. Um, in fact, what they wanted me to do was fire those faculty members and hire the identical human beings back at that lower salary with no benefits. Um, and I refused to do that and I argued vehemently and for um, a long time, about two years, that it was unethical and that a Jewish institution should not be treating its employees that way. Um, and they ended up basically creating an ultimatum that forced the faculty to vote to eliminate the writing program as it was so that they could fire those faculty members. They did that with the threat of if we didn't have that vote, they would fire 21 other faculty members across the college. So I voted myself to eliminate my own program. Um, and after that happened, I 
voluntarily gave up tenure and quit my job. Um, and I moved to the high school because I needed a job. <laughs> um, and that was what was available. So. But you went to SAR. I did go to SAR, which is yeah. hardly a step down. <laughs> yes. Maybe a half a step. Yeah, it's, it's it. fantastic. But I had planned my whole life to be a college professor, and I had earned tenure as a college professor. I did not have experience teaching high school, so I was very lucky that they took a chance on me. Um, and it's worked out very well. Um, and I, you know, have all the best wishes for YU that they'll b rebuild and be able to put that program back together um, eventually. But I didn't feel that I could be part of it anymore. Um, I think it's not just YU at all. It's universities generally where there's a terrible labor inequity um, between the highest tenured professors and the adjunct professors. But I do not want to be part of that. And I don't feel that I can ethically be part of that. Um, it's a kind of... It's a kind of labor system in which I do not believe. So. Thank you for being honest. Sure. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for a wonderful, wonderful lecture. Oh, you're welcome. Thank and you. I feel sorry for all of the people who are not occupying these chairs. Oh, <laughs> well, maybe they're sitting at home in the rain, feeling very cozy and listening to it online. <laughs> but in, in, uh, listening to the Larkin poem, mm -hmm. the image that kept coming back to my mind was standing in front of Tintern Abbey. Oh, nice. Tintern Abbey, yeah. Saying, you know what, these things do, do move you. Yes. But his idea of what happens after disbelief vanishes yes. is such a powerful idea. Right. Because, in effect, he said, if it wasn't here, at least the way I understand it, if it wasn't here, we'd have to create it. Yes, that's exactly what he is saying. So, right, so, it, so you're saying it reminds you of, of standing outside Tintern Abbey, and there is something moving about being at, these, at some of these buildings. It's absolutely true, but that what Larkin is saying that is, is when disbelief is gone, um, that we'd have to create it in some way. And I think that's exactly right. Um, and in fact, I think he's pointing out that there's something that feels very supernatural about it and also something very human created about it. And those are the things that are coming together. And if the supernatural part isn't there, humans would have to create it anyway because we're dealing with so many mysteries like birth and death. And once those mysteries exist as realities in our world, we need something to help us order them in some way, to help us understand them. So we would have to create it if it weren't there. I think that's a, that's a great reading of the poem, yeah. And it's a shame to me that so many people read that Larkin poem as being about his irreverence because I think that it's so much more than that even though he's saying it in a kind of offhanded way. And there are things, especially in the first two stanzas, that feel a little snarky. I think it's actually a poem about deep, deep faith, just maybe not in the way that looks the most traditional on its surface. Um, but it's really interesting. If you look at the scholarship about that poem, it's almost always about like Philip Larkin, the disbeliever. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? Who among us has not walked into some holy space and, and not wanted to touch the rim of this or that. Right, right. So we do, you're saying who hasn't walked into a, a holy space and felt like a little hands off? And he doesn't, right? He ran, runs his hand around the font. He goes up to the front. He flips the pages. Like, it does feel like he doesn't have that sense of stay back a little bit that maybe a lot of us have. But he has some other sense that, mm -hmm. that mimics that, even if it's not about physical touch. Right. There's something else. Um, he's definitely aiming for some kind of piety there, even if it's not exactly that one. Yeah. Yes? Do you teach any of these poems to your high school students? 
I teach all of these poems, yes, absolutely. So, sure. Um, okay, so SAR is a very special school. Um, the kids are... Oh, okay, so uh, SAR High School is in Riverdale in the Bronx. It's just a, it's a modern Orthodox high school, very forward-thinking. Um, Salanter Akiba Riverdale. So it was a combination of two schools, Salanter and Akiba, from a, a while ago that, that joined together to become one, and then the Riverdale is just where it's located. It was a lower school for a long time. The high school is not that old, I think about 14 years old. Um, but there was a lower school for many years before that. And um, it's like it's a it's a pretty intense education, a very worldly sort of education. And we have a lot of freedom to teach what we'd like to teach. And the thing that we talk about there a lot is the grand conversation, which in YU language was Torah Umada, right? But I think grand conversation means even more than Torah Umada. It's not just that they sit side by side, but we're meant to bring um, our religious belief and our understanding about faith into our English classrooms, and we're meant to bring literature into our Torah classrooms, and like there's lots of sort of intermixing as we think about what it means to be knowledgeable, worldly, committed, observant Jews. Like those things don't all fit together so easily. And so we're always en engaged in this sort of grand conversation. I think poems like these work really well for the grand conversation, because what they're saying is, how do we think about faith? What does it mean to be a person of faith? And each of these poets, you can see, has a very different answer to that question. And for students who are just embarking on their independent lives to have the opportunity to say, what kind of person of faith do I want to be? What does faith mean to me? Right? We talk about mitzvot all the time, and we talk about observance, um, and we study Torah and Gemara, but like these are questions that feel very modern, too. So we can do this alongside something like Lonely Man of Faith, right? And say, how do we see the Rav's philosophy fitting into some of the things that these 20th century Christian poets are thinking about? And the students are totally open to having those conversations. And sometimes they'll push back um, and say, I don't know, I don't, I don't think this has anything to do with me. And that's fine. But in general, I think they're really open to hearing as many ideas as there are out there in the world. And so I feel like every time I introduce a new poem or a new story or novel to students, they're like just ready to learn, really soaking it up. Um, and I think it's a testament to the school that they set up an environment where students feel safe learning things that are outside their own tradition without feeling threatened by it. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, and also feel like they can engage with it meaningfully without it undermining their sense of their own Jewishness. Um, at YU, I taught a course called Christianity and Modern Poetry. I taught it for several semesters. Um, and people worried at first, like, how's that going to go over? But it was full every semester. The students want to know this stuff. And it's not because YU students are looking to be Christian. Like, this is not about proselytizing. I'm not capable of that. <laughs> I'm Jewish. But like, they just want to know what's out there. They want to understand it. And they want to understand it on a deep level. So I found it with the YU students as well. Um, they were really open to having these deep conversations because a person who lives a daily life of faith is thinking about these things all the time. And the more information you have, the more you can think about who you are yourself. So I find that with the high school students, but I found it with the college students as well. Um, you know, and sometimes also we have to fight with the language. Like the Richard Wilbur, it's just a hard poem. So, you know, there's always that level. But once we get past that, the conversations are great.
I have to say, I also teach the AP Lit class, so my students are really strong students who, who are like purposely taking the hardest literature class. Um, so they're very open to these kinds of things. Well, thank you all so very much. Um, it was great to get to speak with you tonight, and I appreciate your coming out in the weather. Um, and I would be happy to point you towards more readings, or I recommend that you look up any of these poets that we read tonight if you liked any of them and read more of their work. Thank you. Thank Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybaitmadrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.